Good morning, saints. Happy Resurrection Day. I feel like a kid in a candy store. Just so much good news and so many good things to say. But let's begin with Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, the story of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary coming to look at the empty tomb. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearing was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran and reported to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they shall see me. Could we pray together? Father, we pray for a rich time in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would put aside every distraction. Now, every challenge that we face could be temporarily suspended. And Lord, we could be shut up with you in your word and in truth. We thank you so much for what we celebrate today, Lord. And we pray that we might hear the voice of your Holy Spirit as we review this great event, the great truths surrounding it, and the blessed gift that you have given us in your life and resurrection in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we celebrate the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that it is a fact of history. Amen? Amen? The life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we celebrate that that transformed civilization. The life and resurrection of Jesus Christ continues to transform us. These are the main things that I want to say this morning. There was a professor of Old Testament theology at ORU for many years, Dr. Howard Irvin. Did any of you have him as a professor? He wrote a book called, These Are Not Drunken As Ye Suppose. And uh, in that book was a great quote where he said, The man with an argument is at the mercy of a man with an experience. The man with an argument is at the mercy of of a man with an experience. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just such an experience 
an experience that transformed timid disciples into fearless martyrs, an event whereby civilization was even transformed, a fact by which to this day people are born again and believe. John 1.12 says, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives what? Power. He gives the right to become the children of God. It's still a reality. How many of you know someone who's come to Christ recently and you're so excited about their salvation? Hallelujah. We want to focus today on this transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But first, let's clear away some of the rubble of ideas that fill the air with the dust of doubt. Let's blow those doubts away concerning the resurrection. For example, come on. That Jesus was just a good moral teacher. This is one we hear a lot, isn't it? And uh, many of you are familiar with the famous quote by C.S. Lewis. You might call it the poached egg quote. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Jesus fulfilled something like 332 distinct prophecies that were given over the thousand years previous to his life, death, and resurrection. Approximately 60 of these are considered major prophecies by many different Old Testament authors. Look at this list here. This list is something that Jesus could not have engineered but simply was outside his control. His birth in Bethlehem, crucified with criminals, the piercing of his hands and feet, soldiers gambling for clothes, piercing of his side, bones not broken at death, and his burial among the rich. Everything about Jesus, his life was poverty. So how could he be buried among the rich? Prophecy was, along with the resurrection, the major argument the disciples went throughout the world to saying and, and trying to prove to convince people that Jesus was the Christ. And then there's the fact we can add to that that he spoke with his own authority. You know what I mean? How many times did he say, you've heard it said before, but I say to you. I say to you. And then we have the I am sayings. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the bread. I am the resurrection. And before Abraham was, 
I am. What about his miracles? There's over 40 recorded in the scriptures. Even those who opposed him acknowledged that he was a miracle worker. In the Talmud, he is called a magician. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. So let's blow that one away. There it goes. Here's another argument you often hear. All religions are really the same. And yet, Buddha said, don't ask me about the afterlife. I know nothing. In Hinduism, there are 330 million gods. Islam says the greatest evil is to believe that God is a trinity and that Jesus was the unique son of God. Judaism, Jesus is not the Messiah. Christianity, Jesus is the Messiah. All religions are not the same. There are not many paths to God. Each religion in its own unique way excludes all the others. The rap on Christianity is that we are the only ones who exclude the others. But that's not true, is it? They all exclude each other in their own unique way. They could be all wrong, but only one can be right. It cannot be said in good faith that all religions are really the same. Here's another one we hear. The Bible is not really reliable. And I want to go a little bit into the classroom for just a few minutes on this point because I think it will greatly build your faith there is something called a bibliographical test. In other words, how do we know that the Bible we hold in our hands is close to the original writings in that first century? So the bibliographical test is the examination of the textual transmission by which ancient documents reach us from the past. So here's a couple of points. Number one, we have no original copies of the books of the New Testament. All, all uh, excuse me, I said original copies. We have no originals. All of our manuscripts are copies. But note that that is true of any ancient historical work. Aristotle's Poetics, the Gallic Wars of Caesar, the Annals of Imperial Rome by Tacitus, and so on are all copies. So to Argue for authenticity of transmission. Again, how close is our Bible to what was originally written? You look at these three things. The time span between originals and copies. The number of copies that you have to compare. And the discrepancies between copies. It's not the case that the Bible is just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And therefore, it, it's meaningless. How do we know that? Well, don't get intimidated by this, this chart. I'm going to make it very easy. What I want you to pay attention to is the bold uh, number of years kind of in the middle column 
and the number of copies or partial copies of many of the ancient documents that we're familiar with on the right-hand side. So you have uh, uh, Thucydides or Thucydides and uh, Heroditus writing about 450 B.C. The oldest copy we have in our hands of their work uh, is from A.D. 900. That's 1,300 years. And there's very few copies, eight or less. Aristotle. We all know Aristotle, right? None of us would question the authenticity of what we read from Aristotle. And yet it was 1,400 years between his original writings and the very first copy we have, 49 in existence, uh, copies or partial copies. Caesar, you see it's 900 years, nine or 10 copies. Tacitus, 700 years, one or two copies. Josephus, there's one copy that's 200 years uh, between the original and the first copy, and then most of them are much older than that. Homer is the closest to the New Testament. There's 643 copies or partial copies, but there's a, a gap of 1,750 years between the original and the oldest one we have in our hands. Now look at the New Testament. All the New Testament letters were written before 80 A.D., and there are at least three that uh, three partial manuscripts in existence that are about 50 to 100 years after that. So, uh, one author said that there's internal evidence that these that we have that are dated at 125 through 200 A.D. Um, may have even been written before 80 A.D., in which case uh, the copies that we have would be right at the time of the original writings. And then look at the number of copies or partial copies. 24,000, 5,600 in Greek alone. So what does that mean, you guys? It means that compared to all the other ancient documents, the time span between what we have in the originals is very small. And the number of copies and partial copies we have is very large. So here's how to make sense of this. Dr. Bruce Metzger, uh, premier author or editor of 50 books on manuscript authority, says the quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison to other works of antiquity. And then Dr. Daniel Wallace, a leading expert on textual criticism, sums up the variation issue this way. There are something like uh, before I read that, let me just say there are something like 400,000 variations, spellings, lines inserted, and so on, if you look at 26,000 documents in uh, at least a half dozen languages. You would expect some variations, right? But Dr. Daniel Wallace, who heads up uh, an institute studying texts, says that Spelling differences and nonsense readings, for example, a skipped line, equal 50% of the discrepancies between copies. Inconsequential word order, synonyms, synonyms, clear later editions, 
so inconsequential to re reproducing the in, uh, original text is 49%. So here's the key. Variations that are both meaningful and supported by early copies comprise 1% of what we hold in our hands. Just to further let you know, Gregory Kukul writes, what can we conclude from the manuscript evidence? Virtually all the 400,000 differences in the New Testament documents, spelling errors, inverted words, non-viable variants, and the like, are completely inconsequential to the task of reconstructing the original. This means that our New Testament is 99% pure, meaning free from meaningful discrepancies between copies. In the, this is the line that hit me. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are in doubt, and none affects any significant doctrine. An example would be the last verse in the Gospel of Mark. It's almost certain that every one of your Bibles, every one of your modern Bibles, says that this was an insertion in later texts. And so in the Bibles that you hold in your hand, when there is a discrepancy that's meaningful, your Bible makes note of it. It cannot be said in good faith that the Bible we have today is a copy of a copy of a copy and therefore unreliable. In fact, just the opposite is true. I hope that builds your faith. Hallelujah. Another argument that we need to blow away is that Jesus wasn't really dead. Let's look at John 19 together. John 19, where we read about the soldiers coming to take him down. Starting in verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. He who has seen this born, has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Michael Green writes of Christ's death, Had Jesus been alive when the spear pierced his side, strong spouts of blood would have emerged with every heartbeat. Instead, the observer John noticed semi-solid dark red clotting seeping out, distinct and separate from the accompanying watery serum. 
This is evidence of mad, massive clotting of the blood of the main arteries and is exceptionally strong medical proof of death. It is all the more impressive because the evangelist could not possibly have realized its significance to a pathologist. The blood and the water from the spear thrust is proof positive that Jesus was already dead. Do you think that the Roman soldiers who were assigned to that duty knew their business? They knew how to confirm death, and they did so by sticking the sword, or excuse me, the spear into the side. One man writes, all the evangelists agree that Joseph had begged the body of Jesus off Pilate, who finding out from the centurion who guarded the cross that Jesus had been sometime dead, gave it to him. You know, no one in the ancient world disputed the death of Jesus. Not the writers of the Gospels, not history writers at that time, like Josephus. And no scholar of good faith, liberal or conservative, today disputes it. It's only the Muslims who dispute the physical death of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, Islam, the doctrines that created Islam were created 600 years later. How would they know? How would they know is a good question to ask. And so we blow away the dust of doubt that Jesus wasn't really dead. And then one more. Maybe it's all just a myth. Maybe it's all just make-believe. Maybe it's all just legend. But the disciples took great pains, didn't they, to say, no, this is not just le legend. I am an eyewitness. We have Peter saying, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his glory. In John, we read, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we beheld with our hands and handled, we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have that famous passage of the resurrection by Paul where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the prophets, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. No, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ today, the most profound and seminal event in human history. It's a fact upon which a third of the world's population is staking their eternal destiny. And it's 
the fact upon which 140 Kenyans at Garissa University this week took a bullet in the head rather than deny their faith in Jesus Christ. Today we bow our knee to the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Hallelujah and hallelujah. Well, let's move on to that transforming power we were talking about. The resurrection transformed everything. First and foremost, the disciples. You know, the disciples came from low-ranking occupations, didn't they? Several were fishermen. One from a socially was a socially despised tax collector. They had different temperaments and personalities. One uh, was overconfident. One craved, two craved social recognition. Another was susceptible and skeptical. Another was a self-serving miser. But after the crucifixion, all except John hid in fear. Yet a few years later, some Jews would say that these disciples were those who what? Had turned the world upside down. In John 20, 19 through 29, we read of a major transformational event. It was really the appearances of Christ that changed the disciples' forever. Yes, the resurrection, but it was the appearances that especially transformed them. So we read in 20, John 20, starting in verse 19, when therefore it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Therefore Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you receive, forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came this time the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. In Acts 9, we read of Paul being confronted by the 
risen Lord on the Damascus Road. You remember the story well. I don't think I have to read it. But the verse that starts that account says that he was still breathing out murder when the Lord confronted him on the Damascus Road. You remember it. He was struck blind. The Lord said, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul went on to uh, be ministered to by a, a brother named Ananias who was originally afraid to go pray for him. He said, Lord, haven't you heard about this man? And the Lord said, go anyway. And so he went and prayed for him. And Paul began to learn about being a Christian. And then in Luke 24, I want to look at that briefly because it's instructive in a certain way. Luke 24, starting in verse 37. This is another resurrection appearance. They were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. But Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, he went one step further, and he said to them, do you have anything to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate. Now, why did our Lord make sure that he had the disciples touch him, look at his wounds, put their fingers in his, in his wounds and even ask them for something to eat because he wanted them and us to know that he was not a resurrected spirit, but he was Jesus Christ risen from the dead in a resurrected body. This was totally new. And it's important because later in Christian uh, in the el evolution of Christianity, certain groups popped up saying he was only a spirit. He only seemed to be. The Gnostics, for example, and even the Muslims centuries later. The point I want to make here is that, most of all perhaps, is that the, the apostles and disciples of Jesus knew. They didn't just believe. They knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. Listen to this author talk about this. He says, the apostles and disciples of Jesus knew, not just believed, that what they reported had empirically transpired. So convinced and motivated were they that according to well-attested tradition, all except the apostle John signed their testimony in blood by dying for what they preached and wrote. Tradition and legend says that Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died after being dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria, Egypt. Luke was hanged in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down. James, the just half-brother of Jesus, was clubbed to death in Jerusalem. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by Herod Agrippa I in Jerusalem. Bartholomew was beaten to death in Turkey. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Thomas was reportedly stabbed to death in India. 
Jude was killed with arrows. Matthias, the successor to Judas, was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas also was stoned to death. Paul was beheaded under Nero in Rome. As stated in the introduction, men do not die for stories they contrive. One thing we don't uh, think a lot about is how the resurrection changed civilization, how the resurrection transformed civilization. There is a great quote by Gregory Kukul that says this, the difference between doing what comes naturally and principled self-restraint is called civilization. The difference between doing what comes naturally and principled self-restraint is called civilization. The, rec the, the uh, Greco-Roman culture into which Christianity exploded was a culture of brutal and unhindered naturalism. Yet Christianity shook the foundations of that culture and continues to uphold cultures today. I want to look at three examples of how Christ's life and resurrection have impacted civilization. The first is the elevation of the status of women. The second is the rise of hospitals and medical care. How many of you knew that that was primarily a Christian uh, innovation? And then an elevated sexual ethic. So let's take, just look at these briefly. Look at the status of Greek women. Just quickly read over that list. I won't read over all of it. But you can see that Greek women were uh, very limited in their freedoms, their rights, and uh, their social value. How about Roman women? They had somewhat more freedom than Greek women, yet they were commonly under the absolute control of their husband. If you look down to about bullet point five, they were under something called paterfamilias. Husband had power in, of life and death over his wife children and grandchildren without legal penalty. She couldn't testify in court. Many women were used sexually throughout society and in pagan temple worship. Well, how about Hebrew women? Hebrew women couldn't testify in court. They couldn't engage in public speaking. They could not be directly taught the law. They were separated from men in synagogue worship and not allowed to sing or speak in the synagogue. So Jesus shocked his disciples by speaking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Rabbinic oral law says, he who talks with a woman in public brings evil upon himself. Another states, one is not so much as to greet a woman, yet he had a long conversation with her, a theological conversation with her. The disciples were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Then we have Mary and Martha. And one, one thing we don't often think about in that story is that Martha was sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in his teaching, his direct teaching, in a way that was forbidden in that culture. Again, rabbinic law states, let the words of the law be burned rather than be taught to a woman. 
If a man teaches his daughter the law, it is as though he taught her lechery. Mary was a cultural deviant, but so was Jesus. Then we have Jesus saying to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? These words contain the heart of the gospel. And Jesus is saying it to a woman and asking her for a response. Women played a prominent role in the gospel account. Women followed him. He appeared first to women after his resurrection. And in Matthew 28, he tells the women to go tell the men what to do. These realities were not lost on the early church. The early church welcomed women. Women worshipped right alongside their men. Women became prominent members of their house churches. Paul honored women. And they were baptized and received the Lord's Supper just like men. As Christianity was legalized in the, third, uh, in the 313 A.D. and things moved on, there were legal rights for women, education was promoted, they could own property, equal authority over their children, a choice in who they married, monogamy overtook polygamy, and then these customs faded away, not quickly, but widow-burning, foot-binding, female circumcision were all condemned in countries with Christian influence. Let's not let anyone tell us that Christianity subjugates women. Amen? How about medical care? You know, in ancient Rome, there was no medical care for the public or for the poor. There was only medical care on the battlefield for soldiers to uh, recover from their wounds and get back out there and fight. Charity hospitals for the poor and indigent public did not in exist until Christianity introduced them. It almost made me think of the Monty Python scene about bring out your dead. And the guy in the cart rises up and says, but I'm not dead yet. You know, that was Rome's view of how to treat people who were sick and dying. Roman culture saw helping the sick as weakness and stupidity. Why, get, why risk getting sick yourself? But one example of a brother who went against the tide was this Benignus of Dijon, a second century Christian. He was martyred because he uh, nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children. Let me see if I can uh, find that reference. Here it is. Benignus of Dijon, a second century Christian, was martyred because he nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. Saving physically frail, unwanted children was an affront to the Romans. It violated their cultural norms. Recall the words of Seneca, the first century Roman philosopher, we drown children who, are, who, who at birth are weakly or abnormal. Hospitals were established with names like St. John, St. Luke, St. Mary, St. Joseph's. Denominations build hospitals as well, don't they? 
We all know of a Baptist hospital, a Presbyterian hospital, a Methodist hospital, and so on. Even the Red Cross, which was founded in Europe by Jean Henry Dunant, known and respected the world over, was started by him. And he chose what? He chose a cross painted red as the symbol of Christ's mercy and love. On his deathbed, he said, I am a disciple of Christ as in the first century and nothing more. Isn't that powerful? Powerful man. He was the first winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And then a third, quickly, a third um, piece of civilization that Christianity uh, transformed forever was mankind's sexual ethic. Christianity says because man is a spiritual being made in the image of God, he can bridle his passions. Roman society was brutal and sexually lawless. If I can be frank, everyone was having sex with everyone. And yet, when Christianity came, people noticed that Christians were faithful to their spouses. Tertullian, for example, wrote this. One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us except our wives. An epistle to Diognetius, the author says somewhat the same thing. He declares how normal Christians are in regard to what they wear, what they eat, how they participate in society. But then he says, Christians share their meals, but not their sexual partners. In the Apology of Aristides, he defends the legitimacy of the Christian faith to the Emperor Hadrian by pointing out how Christians do not commit adultery or fornication and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union. One author, Dr. Alvin Schmidt, wrote a book called How Christianity Changed the World. And in it, he describes Emperor Julian the Apostate, uh, an emperor who, at, when he was a young man, believed in Christ and followed Christ, but then renounced Christ and became a persecutor of Christians. However, when he was dying on the battlefield in an apparent act of repentance, he said, Vesisti Galilei, meaning you Galileans have conquered after all. Isn't that beautiful? In closing, I want to say the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ is transforming us. I had a long conversation with an old man who is a lifelong atheist, and I asked him this question. I said, do you want to believe? Do you want to believe? I understand intellectually maybe you can't believe, but I said, do you want to believe? And he said, that's a good question. He said, I'm satisfied with my life. I have not defrauded anyone. And then he ended with kind of a rallying cry, I don't need anyone telling me how to live. What I saw in his answer was there, is no, there was no desire 
for transformation. I want to tell you, friends, I need transformation. I still need transformation. I am not satisfied with me. And I need Jesus Christ to, tra trans uh, to transform me. You know, the key question of life might be asked, or a key question might be, is the quest of life to be satisfied with your life? Well, Jesus calls us to something radically different, doesn't he? He calls us to give our lives away. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we read, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. And then in 2 Corinthians 3, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask the question right now. Have you been transformed? by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he transformed the disciples, he can transform you. If he transformed civilization, he can transform me. I need to be transformed. I need the life and power of the resurrection in my life and I pray that in these moments you are feeling and knowing your need for the resurrection as well. I want to pray for any who have perhaps never given their lives to Jesus Christ, never confessed the resurrection the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Precious Lord, I pray that you would go to any hearts in this room who have yet to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and that you would convince us now of our need for the life and power of Jesus Christ. If that's you, I just want to ask you this morning to raise your hand so I can lead you in a prayer in your heart.
Is there anyone here who would like to receive Jesus Christ for the very first time? Raise your hand high so I don't miss you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that hand. Thank you, Lord. All right. There's one person raising their hand. I'm just going to pray. And would you uh, pray after me in your heart so that you can receive Jesus? Father, thank you for sending your son for me to die on the cross and shed his blood to be a sacrifice for my sin. I repent of my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to wash me. I ask you to save me. I confess Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And I thank you for your word that gives me confidence that today I am saved. I ask you to fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit and give me the gifts that I will need to serve you wholeheartedly. And I pledge to serve you all of my days until you take me home to heaven. As a body, let's just thank the Lord for that person who has received the Lord. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Now, how many of the rest of us just want to say, I still need that transformation? Would you stand if that's your heart? Lord, we just thank you so much that you are alive in us and you continue to transform us and change us from one degree of glory to another. We pray, Father, that this year we would see tremendous power unleashed in our lives. Those who need healing, Lord, may you quicken their mortal bodies with that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. We pray for spontaneous healings, Lord, and spontaneous breakthroughs. We pray for those who struggle with mental illnesses, Lord, to find freedom and the power of a sound mind. We pray, Father, for our ability to witness and evangelize and disciple. We pray, Lord, for a new power to uh, walk out the gospel to be true followers of Jesus Christ. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Continue to transform us, O Lord. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name.